Welcome to UCI Law Talks from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join us on Twitter at UCI Law. Good afternoon, everyone. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this presentation in UCI Law's COVID-19 and the Law series. And today's topic is affordable housing. Before introducing our speaker and our moderator, I want to recognize the UCI Law team that assisted in developing this program. And they are Rebecca Bergeron, Jillian Henry, Pedro Aguilar, Dennis Sloan, and Marianne Soden. Thank you so much for bringing us all together. So our speaker today is Professor Bob Solomon. And we are so fortunate to have Professor Solomon on our faculty. He joined our faculty in 2011 He's a clinical professor of law, co-director of the Community and Economic Development Clinic, and co-chair of UCI's Center for the Study of Cannabis. Professor Solomon's clinic focuses on issues of community and economic development in low and moderate income populations. The clinic emphasizes non-adversarial and transactional approaches to advocacy, although the students also litigate matters when necessary. Students in the clinic address issues related to homelessness, small business and nonprofit development, and policy initiative designed to improve their clients' communities. Many of the clients reside in mobile home parks, and much of the clinic's work re revolves around helping them with the problems they face. So the clinic has represented farm workers living in substandard uh, parks in the Coachella Valley low-income residents concerned about park management practices in San Bernardino, and residents seeking to purchase and operate a park in San Juan Capistrano. Prior to arriving at UCI Law, Professor Solomon directed clinical studies at the Yale Law School. For five years, he also led the City of New Haven's Housing Authority. And then prior to teaching at Yale, he was a legal services attorney and had the benefit of being a generalist with an enormous amount of client contact. And during that time, he came to believe that problem solving was the most important specialty in the practice of law. So as I mentioned, we are so incredibly fortunate to have Professor Solomon here at UCI Law. And with all of his diverse experiences, Professor Solomon has seen the issues around affordable housing from many perspectives over many years, and he'll be sharing some of his knowledge with us. So thank you so much, Professor Solomon, for joining us this afternoon. Thank you, Song. Today's moderator is Mitch Kamen. Mr. Kamen is a partner at Covington and Burling LLP in Los Angeles. He represents media, entertainment, sports, and other companies in a wide range of civil litigation and he is also co-chair of the firm's commercial litigation practice group. Mr. Kamen also maintains a robust pro bono practice. He's the immediate past chair of the board of directors of One Justice, which is an innovation lab focusing on legal services in California. It develops networks and applies creative problem solving and design approaches to the thorny question of how to increase legal services for those in need. From 2003 to 2010, he was president and CEO of Betsetic Legal Services, which is one of the leading nonprofit legal organizations in the US. Mr. Kamen currently serves as vice chair of the Board of Commissioners for the LA Homeless Services Authority and previously chaired the Board of Commissioners 
for the Housing Authority of LA. He's a graduate of UC Berkeley and of Harvard Law School. Thank you so much, Mitch, for joining us. Thanks, uh, I just want to share one personal note before I turn this over to you to begin our program. I feel like this is a version of this is your life for me uh, because I knew Bob Sullivan when I was a student at Yale and it was so great to join uh, the faculty with him when I arrived in 2014. And then Mitch and I, I won't even say how many years ago it was that he and I first met when we both worked at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund doing capital habeas work. And I, I won't share what we did during one of our trips in the South. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> it's so great to see both of you. And I'm really looking forward to today's program. Thanks, Song. It's, it's always great to see you. And uh, we always have the memories from those many years ago. But um, <laughs> Thanks for all you're doing at UCI Law School. It's really remarkable. Um, Bob. Oh, I have to mention one thing. Mitch Kamen is also a member of our Board of Visitors. Sorry, that's a very important point. Okay, go ahead, Mitch. Okay. Thanks, and, and proud to be. Uh, so Bob, I, I'm really excited to be here with you and to learn from you. Um, we had a chance to catch up briefly before, but um, why don't we start with you just kind of laying the groundwork and explaining your perspective on how housing and homelessness fit into um, issues like health and poverty and racial justice. Thanks, Mitch. Well, you know, we, we, we've known for decades that if you, the easiest way to improve people's health is to improve their housing. And yet we're constantly talking about health care without talking about housing. Um, it is ironic that uh, at a time of a pandemic, um, we seem to be making more efforts to, um, to treat uh, people who are homeless and to treat to avoid the health problems. And of course, we do that by housing them. Um, I will say that the first time I walked into a homeless shelter along with law students was 1986. Um, and it was a pretty humbling experience. I had been a a legal services lawyer for 13 years. I was used to representing tenants and tenant groups. Uh, and the thought of not having a place to sleep at the end of the day, uh, and if you did in a shelter that you had to leave at seven or eight the following morning and cope with the day, uh, and somehow you were supposed to um, find a job and work, and if you had children, go to school. Um, so, you know, that's totally insane. Uh, so we know that not only does housing affect health, um, but it affects whether your kids go to school. It affects whether or not you can keep a job. Uh, and if you are in substandard housing, which is better than being homeless, um, it still means that your housing problems are with you 24 hours a day. Uh, when we were out in Coachella uh, with mobile, uh, with farm workers, uh, one of the things we saw that is if it rained during the rainy season and the mobile home leaked, couldn't work that day. Um, you spent the day fixing your roof. And these were people who were working a lot harder than I have worked any day in my life. I did have two weeks where I dug ditches before I was uh, fortunate enough to get another job. And uh, believe me, I did not want to go to that ditch uh, digging job. So housing is incredibly important. And, and, and yet we put it last on the list. We treat the housing market as though it works. It works better than a lot of markets. Most people are housed. Most people have hot water. Most people have clean water. Um, but too many people don't have any of those things. Well, what do you make of the trends in recent years? There are more and more 
resources, at least in Southern California, going into creating long-term supportive housing and homeless services, and yet the numbers of homeless, uh, people experiencing homelessness are, have been increasing um, despite more being housed than ever before. So what, what's your sense of the scope of the problem and the causes of it right now? Yeah, there, well, there's more than one problem. And, and if you read, uh, you know, anything I've written, I'm always against cutty cooker solutions and, and uh, cookie cutter solutions. And that's the problem with HUD. I, you know, I ran a housing authority for years and HUD is always looking at the solution and, and there's not a solution. But you mentioned supportive housing and for many people, particularly single people uh, who are homeless, supportive housing is an answer. Uh, and it ties in pretty dramatically um, with the discussion of defunding the police. Now, I think, I think the phrase defunding the police is going to be something that for the next two years, we're all going to say, okay, what do you mean by that? So here's one thing I mean by that when I say I support defunding the police. And, and I think the idea that I support would also be supported by most police. Uh, at least the police I've talked to over the years, which is that they're spending too much time um, trying to control the homeless, where the homeless are, moving people. You know, we often hear the phrase, if your only tool is a hammer, you need to hit everything. But I think, I think the other end of the phrase is, is actually more important, which is if you define every problem as a nail, then you need to buy a lot of hammers to start hitting those nails. Uh, and we define too many problems as questions of social control. So if you have a, a store, you don't want homeless people hanging out in front. And you know, frankly, that's sort of reasonable, um, but you need to supply to provide another place for people to go. Uh, supportive housing works. Uh, and for there's many studies now saying that supportive housing, which by the way is housing plus services. What services? It depends what you need. It may be services um, to help you prepare meals. It may be services um, to help you do some activity. It may be job training. It may be it may be medication control. Um, if you provide a minimum of housing, uh, often congregate, often single room occupancy, um, something hopefully better than a shelter, but even a shelter, and you provide those services, you reduce emergency room expenses, you reduce prisons, you reduce uh, the kind of police social control that we're doing on the street. There are several studies um, that show this is revenue neutral, which means it really is not a big expense. Now, Developing this housing is not easy and it goes very, very slowly uh, and developing um, any housing, my uh, students uh, will hear my mantra, with outside control, you're just an academic talking about an idea. And by site control, I mean the ability um, to claim some kind of ownership interest, even an option for $1 that will let you go to go to people and say, I have a right to this land, here's what I want to do. If you don't have site control, um, everyone thinks you're, uh, you, that's very nice. That's a cute idea. Um, cute ideas are great. Academics write about them all, all year we write about them. But site control is the key. We have two, Kate, two projects in which our clinic was able to get site control. And now both of them are owned by residents or tenant groups, um, organizations that are controlled by residents. That's the goal. Let's control the housing. What's the ultimate goal of the long-term affordable housing 
strategy. And the reason I'm asking it that way is because you mentioned shelters being potentially adequate. And in Los Angeles, there's a housing first strategy as opposed to New York, which I'm sure you're familiar with from your time in New Haven, where there's a right to shelter strategy. And that strategy has been critiqued as not being one that will actually break the cycle of homelessness as yeah. contrasted to a housing first strategy. I, I think that's a fair critique. And I'm, I'm not a fan of looking at shelters as, um, as permanent housing, but I was a fan in our community um, of housing people and tents at the Great Park because the tents were better than what people had. Now it's better, you know, if you walk through the Civic Center at Santa Ana or the Riverbank, um, as a lot of people did more than I did, but, but I did, um, you saw housing that was just, it wasn't housing, it was untenable. Um, I remember, you know, talking to someone who said, well, tonight's, you know, tonight's a hot night. I think I can sleep outside my bag. Um, like that was a good, that was a good thing. Well, it's all pretty comparative. Um, but the idea of tents was move from tents to a shelter, move from shelter to supportive housing. Um, the housing continuum is critical. As far as what's the long-term goal, um, uh, we don't have a long-term goal. We don't, we don't have a strategy. We don't, we, you know, we don't even have, uh, we, we have never had a housing strategy in the United States that was um, a uniform uh, project. We had a strategy for um, developing the West, which would give away some land to some people. We had a strategy for building railroads, which would develop uh, towns along the way. Uh, we had a strategy during the Depression for putting people to work by building public housing. We have never really had a housing strategy. And by, and by the way, to the extent that we almost had a housing strategy, you might say 40 acres and a mule um, was a strategy that in 1865 seemed to be working in islands off of Savannah. Um, and that was you know, the idea of reparations uh, and of developing a system whereby everyone uh, would have, the reparation would be the ability to have decent housing and decent work. Uh, and, you know, we took that away. Who got reparations? White slave owners. Um, so the strategy has always been, uh, we're not going to care about who's at the bottom. And, the bo and who's at the bottom is not just income related, it's race related. When you're talking about a strategy, you're talking about a nationwide strategy. Do you think, well, and I want to hear what your ideas for it are, because I know you have some, yeah. and also how to pay for it. So yeah, how to pay for it. Um, I, have, I have two slides. <laughs> I'm not too in favor of doing a lot of slides, but I will show a slide. Uh, and what the slide is going to show is that our current tax system is basically um, a bad policy. Uh, it preferences the wealthy with um, tax exemptions. Uh, and I was, I was going to say, you know, in my mind, I say it's bad policy, but the truth is um, it's a scam. It's welfare for the rich. Um, so we need to do away with welfare for the rich. Um, uh, and I'll show that in a minute. But let me say one other thing that we have. We, we have an enormous problem in the uh, three states I know best, Pennsylvania, where I started um, as a legal services lawyer, uh, Connecticut, where I worked for a lot of years, uh, and California, and I'm sure it's true in 50 states, and that's the local control. Um, every community wants to control, uh, and uh, that means that in, uh, in New Haven uh, and Hartford and Bridgeport in Connecticut, we crowd in people of color uh, and low-income people, and we surround those uh, with wealthy suburbs that will not allow 
uh, uh, people to come in. Uh, we have Greenwich, Connecticut, which is you know it's worse than Newport because we have five acre zoning. I don't think you can have five acre zoning in much in most of Newport. Um, but we have all kinds of mechanisms to keep people out. We have very few to keep people in. So um, when we hear about the the Democrats' proposal for um, uh, for subsidies, uh, people are shocked that well this could cost fifty billion a year. So where are we going to get fifty billion? We have the mortgage deduction. People can deduct mortgage interest from their um, from their taxes. Everyone thinks this is a great thing for the middle class. Uh, in fact, uh, only uh, something like 10% of people are, uh, are are not using the standard deduction now. Uh, the mortgage uh, deduction is a great deal if you are paying a mortgage of $750,000 or more. Uh, you got to be pretty rich to have a mortgage, not even a house value of $750,000 a year. This is uh, about $50 billion a year, and let's say roughly $35 billion of it um, is going to people who are already wealthy and do not need the tax deduction. Um, we have the charitable deduction, which is all but eliminated for most people by the recent tax act. Uh, the charitable deduction is about $35 billion a year. Uh, and, and where does it go? Well, about, about 50 billion, but about 75% goes to education. So we sit here um, and we think that, oh, there it is. We think that education- I was able to get it for you. I know, you're, I, I'm too jumpy here, sitting here talking. Uh, so I appreciate that. Look where it says charitable contribution, 75% for education, it goes to education. And we think, well, that's great that people are giving to education, but, but they're really not giving to your local neighborhood school uh, and people are not giving um, uh, to uh, around the country. Um, yeah, the next slide's good. I'll get to that in a second. The first slide just shows um, how, how great the need is. Um, when we talk about 75% for education, we're talking about Yale's $28 billion endowment. Uh, and so if someone gives $100 million to Yale, or to, which happens, um, that means that the federal government is contributing $60 million of that. Um, that's not really where our funds should go. It, it, it's fantastic that Michael Bloomberg gave $3 billion, with a B, dollars to Johns Hopkins to make it tuition free. Um, but, but that's not really um, where we need the funds to go. If we made a policy decision, uh, we would put it into state schools. We would put it into the Cal State system, into the UC system, uh, into state schools, traditional um, uh, black colleges, uh, traditional state land grant colleges, uh, because we can show by statistics that for the last 60 years, um, that those are the schools that brought people um, into the job market those are the schools that helped increase um, wealth uh, in a way that uh, only education and housing has done over the years. If you look at capital gains on home sales, um, again, that's going to largely wealthy people. Um, the, the, the more expensive your house is, um, the, more expensive, the, the more capital gains you're going to get. Um, and I'll look at one more before we move on, reduce capital gains and dividends tax. You know, the whole notion of this 160 plus billion dollars, and this is every year, um, is that if we give this, we'll reinvest uh, and that will help everyone. It will all trickle down. 
um, a rising tide raises all boats. Well, you know, the truth is it does if you have a boat. Uh, if you don't have a boat, it doesn't help if the tide is rising. Uh, and if your boat leaks, it doesn't help either. Uh, so it's going to start trickling down. It's never going to reach the bottom. Uh, and the question is, do people really reinvest from the, with this tax money? It's up and down. Uh, it's a question. But why are we allowing um, people like Bill Gates? I like his investment, his strategy. I like what he does. But, but, but why do we give him that kind of billion dollar uh, tax benefit to make the decisions of where those funds should go? There, there is someone who spent 60, donated $60 million to build a high school football stadium in Texas. That means that we, the taxpayers, um, paid roughly 24 to $30 million to build that high school football stadium. You know, that's just insane. Uh, and the reason we continue doing this is because we're losing the war in Congress, but we're all also um, losing the war of words. We talk about the death tax uh, as opposed to the estate tax. We talk about uh, reinvestment strategies as opposed to welfare for the rich. These are great marketing tools. You know, I always like to say the invention of the word muffin was a great marketing tool because it convinced people to eat cake for breakfast. Uh, I would never eat cake for breakfast, but, but, but I'd, I'll glad to have a muffin. No, I would never drink for breakfast, but a mimosa sounds great. So these are great terms, uh, and that's personal choice. I'm all for rich people donating money to their al alma maters. I'm not for um, uh, this welfare for the rich, which takes the decision away from the public. So the important part of this chart, um, which I can't see here, but is really the low-income housing tax credit. And you see that's a nine. That's a maximum, by the way. It's not really nine because people are not investing in the tax credit anymore. 90% of new affordable housing construction in the United States comes from the low-income housing tax credit. 90%, and yet we put only $9 billion a year into this. Um, and it's capped. None of these other things is capped. The entire proposed HUD budget is $48 billion next year. Uh, it'd probably go up because of the pandemic, but it's not going to go up to 60. Uh, and all of the money we spend on Section 8 tenant vouchers, um, the single largest investment in subsidizing tenant rents is $23 billion a year. Our total tax expenditures is 1.4 trillion, that's every year. And can you bring up the next, the next slide? So here you see where it goes. Um, of this 1.4 trillion, uh, 20, almost 25% goes to the top 1% in the country. Uh, people who need it least, uh, and uh, 50, almost 59% goes to the top fifth. So this is just crazy policy. Uh, the money is there and there's lots of things we can do. So we can go back to our, our faces. Um, I'm not sure it's better, but there we have it. Um, it so, is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is, exactly. Um, at least we're well-dressed. So the, you know, it's really not a question of money. It's a question of political will. It's a question of who is going to be making these decisions. It's a question of social control. Um, and it's a question of uh, whether or not we're going to have an equitable society. And by an equ equitable society, 
housing advocates know uh, every housing advocate will will smile at this. We're not talking about bringing down you know wealthy luxury housing. It's just not our issue. Uh, we're always talking about taking the very bottom and moving it up a few inches at a time um, until we get to a situation where everyone has water, where everyone's in healthy housing, where everyone has the opportunity to go to a decent school district during the day. Um, those are pretty basic things. And, and this is not in any way a money issue. Anyone who says it is a money issue is frankly just lying. So the money's there, but what, what would be your thinking on how, maybe we can use the charitable contribution as a, an example. How would you reallocate that benefit? Would there be a threshold in terms of who would still qualify and who would not? Where would the money go and what would it be used for? Yeah, I, I'm in favor of means testing. I mean, I'm in favor of starting at the bottom and starting to move people up. Um, as you know, I made said earlier, I'm in favor of reparations. I think um, fair housing goes a long way um, toward, towards what we should go. Um, the notion that I saw a poll today say 20% of the country is in favor of it, and that's not a high number. Um, but it's a lot higher than it was uh, probably a few years ago. The notion that we're talking about this now when we should have been talking about it in 1865, which I guess we were in 1920 in Tulsa and other places, but we're where we are. Um, so where should it go? Well, for one thing, low-income housing tax credit um, is a tax credit for wealthy people, um, but it does get them to invest in affordable housing. Uh, and uh, we have, um, it's currently people are investing less because with interest rates so low, it's just not as good an investment as it was. Um, we should have a flexible means whereby we can uh, increase the returns on the low-income housing tax and credit, credit to get people to invest. Uh, and we should double, triple, quadruple um, the cap so that people start investing. Uh, we have a problem with the cost of land um, and land in, in our community is extremely expensive. Um, we need ways to uh, have commitments where the state can override localities uh, and uh, make decisions. We have a housing element in California which requires each town um, to, uh, to establish a number that no one really listens to except for housing advocates and no one enforces, at least not yet. Those kinds of things need to be enforceable. Um, we need to be able to, um, to take all the funds we uh, take, use for the homeless. Uh, prisons are very expensive, is very expensive housing. Emergency rooms is very expensive housing. Um, and we need to try to um, put those into funds. You know, some of the, I, I lived in, had for a short time vac vacations in Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, uh, which is a wonderful, beautiful place. And um, uh, we bought a house and we were shocked to find out that we had a 2% tax, which went into a fund to for land trusts. Um, and um, so basically I was required to pay a fair amount of money for a land trust um, that in Martha's Vineyard preserved land, but some of it went for affordable housing. Um, you know, that's just a local ordinance. It's not that big a deal when you come right down to it. Every realtor in the country will, you know, want, want to um, write me hate mail for this and, and for the mortgage deduction. But, but the truth is housing costs are inflated because of the mortgage deduction. Uh, they're inflated um, because of land values, uh, because of speculation. Um, so, you know, those are two ideas. We need to have 
more inclusive zoning. Um, we need to have ways to keep people in communities as they redevelop and land trust is one idea. Cape Cod has a 10% um, uh, requirement for inclusive zoning. Uh, you have to have 10% affordable housing. Um, I'll tell you one crazy thing I did when I was a housing authority director. Um, uh, there, a developer got a piece of land from the city, was going to build what was considered luxury housing, 450 units on a site that probably shouldn't have held that many units. Uh, and they wanted um, investment from the housing authority in the form of Section 8 vouchers and cash. Uh, and so that was a way to put people um, from a housing authority list into um, fairly expensive housing at a low cost. Uh, and the issue was, you know, how much should we spend for this? And the uh, developer wanted a 10-year Section 8 guarantee. And I said, no, it's too short. Not that it's too long, not that it's too much money. But if we're going to amortize this, let's get a 20-year guarantee. So in the end, um, we got 45 units and a 20-year guarantee. And um, too much cash. Um, at least some people thought it was too much cash. Um, but from my perspective, um, we paid a premium to get this great housing for 45 families for 20 years. Um, that's a political decision. It was largely mine, good or bad. Maybe it was bad. Um, but, but those are the kinds of decisions that people have to make. Um, so, you know, Judge Carter's decision is a choice. It's a, you know, it's a judicial choice, but it's largely a choice. I'm sick of people living in these terrible conditions. I'm going to force you to do something. Um, so Los Angeles is now forced to do something that would not be its first choice, um, but it is a choice. Right. So Judge Carter's decision uh, was in response to a lawsuit filed by a neighborhood group um, concerned with homelessness and encampments. Um, Judge Carter, after some uh, negotiations with the city and the county and the plaintiffs, ordered the city and the county to find immediate um, housing options or shelter options for about 6,000 people living near and under freeway overpasses. And that question, I mean, what, what he did makes me want to ask you about the impact of uh, a situation like a pandemic, which is unprecedented, although things like, you know, uh, recessions are not uh, unprecedented. But how do these sorts of events affect our ability to make long-term policy decisions? And so Judge Carter ordered one thing that was not exactly how the city and the county had been planning to deal with the situation long-term. There's also a statewide initiative I'm sure you're familiar with, Project Room Key, because people experiencing homelessness are particularly vulnerable to the pandemic, there was an initiative to get hotel rooms and, and move people in as quickly as possible. And I think something like six or 8,000 folks have benefited from the program in LA so far. Uh, but those initiatives and Judge Carter's orders require resources. And how does that affect our ability to stay the, well, to, to have a longer term solution? I was gonna say stay the course, but I think arguably we're not on the course. Yeah, well, to you. maybe stay the current course, uh, and we've taken a couple steps. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm an optimist to the point of being a Pollyanna, so I'm always looking for what, what the doors does this open and what's our possibility for the future. Um, 
there are, you know, I, I described how there's money that I only talked about a small amount of it. There, there's, there's plenty of funds. Um, but, but the real, you know, the real economic issue is that in, in times of need, you, you spend, you do go into debt with the hopes you can, expectation that you can repay in the future. And when we've done this during the depression, during the recession, it has worked. Um, so, you know, anything good that happened to the economy after 2007 happened in large part because of uh, government willingness to spend funny, fund, spend funds to, to invest. Um, you know, look at General Motors for one. Um, you know, so was that the right long-term decision? Um, yeah, probably. Uh, we did a lot with mortgage foreclosures in the state I was in and around the country, and that cost money, and uh, that that infringed on banks. But banks had no choice because you know they were they had so many other problems, and we invested in some banks, not enough banks. We didn't invest in South Shore Bank in Chicago, where we should have put money in. We didn't invest in community banking, uh, but we invested in the big banks, and, and in the end, they all survived. Um, so, I, you know, I think, I think the money problem is always a, a phony problem, because we find it when we need it. Um, so, you know, California is a state that voted an additional tax to, to put into higher education um, when, shortly after I came here. And that was remarkable um, because we were told that could never happen. Um, so I think where there's a common will um, the, the, that we, funds are not the issue. How we spend funds is an enormous issue. Well, the reason I like the low-income housing tax credit um, and the reason a lot of my colleagues don't like it is, is because it, it requires private investment. Uh, and some people think it's just another way to get private, you know, wealthy people more money. Um, and, and it is, but at least we are telling them um, where they have to spend the money. And, it, and it's on affordable housing uh, and affordable housing um, as it developed. Uh, and not only is it developed, but it's well managed. Uh, as, as a director of a housing authority, um, housing management's hard. Um, uh, running a homeless shelter is hard. Uh, and uh, the, you know it's it's really difficult. You know um, um, the the dean is is now dealing with um, how do you get people in and out of a classroom when they have to be six feet apart and some of them want to go to the bathroom. That's hard. Well, the logistics are hard. So you know the the daily um, things of how things actually run uh, are a lot harder than the ideas I'm throwing out because I'm making them sound easy. Um, but if you get enough people to want to invest in housing. Um, uh, that's going to develop funds that is going to uh, lower the actual cost and make it feasible. Um, you know, we're going to have to find ways to, to get land and uh, the state has the power to take land. Uh, and at some point, the state has to say, uh, if you are not willing as a municipality to have a plan, um, then we are going to override you and we are going to step in and we are going to take land by eminent domain uh, and we are going to use it for affordable housing. Uh, the power is there. Uh, you know, the fact that we're in a pandemic means the police power is greater, not less, um, because we have emergency needs. And the fact that we are now saying, uh, well, yeah, homeless people are on the street and that, that sucked for them, but, but the, we didn't really care that much. Um, they're not deserving. Uh, and now we look at it as, oh, they're going to spread disease. So that is bad for us. Well, we should have not said the first thing, but you know, I'm willing to take the second thing as a way to move forward because the issue is to move forward. Before we leave the, you know, how to pay for it topic, a question, questions have been coming in, which we'll get to, but one 
specifically concerns Prop 13 and whether, you know, the, the government has the power in California, but so do voters in terms of the <laughs> initiative <laughs> process. Um, is there uh, a change to Prop 13, like a progressive property tax, meaning EV 1% on your first home, but a higher rate on second homes, maybe also a vacancy tax? Is there some sort of change in the California tax structure related to property taxes that might assist in these efforts? Yes. <laughs> the question is a rhetorical question as far as I'm concerned. Prop 13 is a disaster. Uh, the elimination of the uh, Redevelopment Act, uh, which, uh, which stopped tax increment financing, uh, was perhaps even a bigger disaster because that was a way um, of creating funds from the development itself. For those who don't know what I'm talking about, we, we had a system whereby municipalities um, could uh, borrow money uh, to, to develop um, certain things, including commercial things, uh, and then use the tax increases in future years to pay off the bonds. I'm oversimplifying this. There was lots of corruption. It was a crazy system. Um, but instead of reforming it, we eliminated it. Um, it's a longer story. We tried to reform it while eliminating it. The California Supreme Court and what I think was sort of a crazy uh, a series of opinions found that eliminating it was constitutional, creating the reform was not constitutional because it was a new tax. So we're left with the worst of both worlds. So uh, property tax is one area, it's not the only area. Um, so there are things that we can do. The state also controls a lot of land. The federal government mm -hmm. controls a lot of land. We have, uh, we have military land, you know, there's all kinds of things we can do. I think the biggest the biggest opposition is from uh, local communities. You know, same thing with cannabis. Uh, we think we have can recreational cannabis. Eighty percent of the state does not have recreational cannabis. Uh, and to the extent that people use cannabis as a medicine, what other medicine can, do you not have access to? Every other medicine you can get through the mail or delivered to your house. Not cannabis. Can't mail cannabis. Don't mail cannabis. <laughs> Um, good advice. Speaking of law enforcement, then, I just I wanted to circle back to your reference to policing homelessness um, and just talk a little bit about um, potential solutions. It seems that some contact between law enforcement and people experiencing homelessness, particularly those who are unsheltered, is inevitable. Um, in LA, we have tried to promulgate guidelines. We have promulgated guidelines that would um, discourage law enforcement from approaching people experiencing homelessness with a law enforcement mentality and more with a service mentality. We've also changed the structure of programming so that outreach workers are the points of contact rather than police officers. Um, but I think it's particularly, you know, poignant in the moment we're experiencing to talk a little bit about how, you know, can law enforcement be uh, a partner in these um, efforts to end homelessness? Do you want, do you think it's divestment from uh, law enforcement is the right approach? What, what do you think about this issue? It's, I know it's a big question. Yeah, well, there, there's a reason we have police. And, um, you know, as I said earlier, police are the hammer, you know, and, and, and so we have to identify what's a nail. Um, uh, 
if there is a serious crime um, or a crime, um, I want the police to investigate. Um, I want the police to arrest people. Um, I think that policing and uh, law enforcement is a deterrent to crime. I believe that. Uh, I don't believe our uh, our penal system, is, which has you know been operating the same way for 200 years or 300 years, is a good one. But I do think that some form of of, of punishment. Uh, and restraint, you know, in certain circumstances is important. So, you know, that, that, that's where I start. Um, the notion um, that we are having dispatchers on 911 calls um, is largely a police problem, is just probably not a great use of police services. Uh, the notion that we have way too much paperwork for police is not a good use of police time. Um, I know that police do not like making domestic calls, and the answer is sometimes they should and sometimes they shouldn't, um, but that initial appraisal should not be from someone who automatically says, um, uh, there's a domestic on Elm Street, and, and the cops go, ugh, a domestic. Um, uh, I know that I, you know, when I was running a housing authority, Every once in a while, our local police chief would summon me to his office to to tell me what I did that was wrong, uh, and um, um, like letting someone who was arrested for cannabis not be uh, like not evicting the right people. Um, and uh, I, you know, I can tell you what what he wanted to do and didn't want to do. He did not want to police public housing. Uh, he did not want to police homelessness. Um, and it wasn't because he was particularly, you know, soft. Um, he he wasn't. Um, he just did not think that was a good use of, of police time. And, and New Haven had, a, for its size, a substantial homelessness problem. But New Haven also put a fair amount of its own money into a shelter, which was incredibly well operated. And even though it was not 24 hours, um, it was a place that people went uh, and people had to be sober to get in. Uh, and people had to do some services around it to keep it clean, uh, and people cared about the space. Uh, and when supportive housing people dragged me, you know, to a supportive local supportive housing facility, um, you know, I didn't know what to expect, and I did not think this was going to be in a, a moment of a great epiphany. But it was. Uh, the place was uh, immaculate. Um, everyone uh, there um, had something to do. Uh, and at one point, one of our group um, dropped a drink, a drink, and one of the residents um, immediately um, got a map, a mop, and cleaned up. And, and afterwards, I said, "Oh, we we can do that." And he said, um, "This is my house. Um, I, I want to keep my house nice." Um, well, he wasn't on the street, um, and he would have been otherwise. Uh, and that's a humane way of treating people, but it's also a smart way of treating people. It's not just charity. Uh, it makes our world better. Um, uh, so that's just one, you know, that's just one element of what we do. Um, there's all kinds of elements. How you treat people with mental health problems is very different than how you treat um, a family uh, that's out of work. Um, there was a great study years ago on moving people from, um, uh, from homelessness to work, from welfare to work. And, and the most important finding was that there's this magic moment um, when people get uh, childcare uh, and they're able to then stay at work. You know what that magic moment is? Kids turn five. Uh, and there's this, there's this incredible daycare system called public schools. Um, so what if we made, had, had um, uh, 
the right to have preschool at age three, which by the way, helps kids education. Um, people who can afford it have preschool at three. Uh, kids learn more and we free up people, especially single mothers to work uh, when their kids turn three, if they want. Um, a lot of people do want that. Um, we've then accomplished a lot and we've spent our educational dollars a lot better than building a football stadium in Texas. I don't know how many people are building football stadiums in Texas, but um, I do know that a lot of people are giving a lot of money to prep schools um, and not to where the money really is necessary. Right. What, one last question from me, and I'm debating which one it should be because there's so many things to cover. We, but we've gotten five or six from our audience and I want to get to those. They won't, mind, wanna... they won't mind if we stay on for another hour. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I took a look at an article you wrote in 2000 uh, with your reflections of being a community-based lawyer, building wow. on some of Jerry Lopez's uh, thinking, which was very inspirational to me and continues to be. And I and I think it's you know resonant today when we um, need to consider strategies to be uh, allies who listen and follow others' lead. And so I just wonder how you you know, these are big questions and big issues and how do you keep your, um, you know, your heart in the right place and ensure that you're, you know, partnering with um, those you are seeking to serve? Well, I, I've picked some bad partners over the years, I will say. Um, but I think if there is a single thing I am most committed to, um, and, you know, been a lawyer for 48 years now. Um, I, I have an article on this that I started in 2009 and will never be done, but it will be part of my estate, but it won't be taxed. Um, and that is you go into a community and you listen to people uh, and you say, I'm your lawyer. You know, what is it that I can do to help you? Too many in poor communities, Lawyers are not friends. Um, poor people see lawyers um, because their landlord's evicting them, because someone's being arrested, because the state is interfering in the family, um, uh, because they have there's a, a debt that's owed. Um, and when people have access to lawyers, it's generally not by choice. Uh, it's by need, uh, and it's because there's a problem. Uh, and I, I think the great love that I have for my work is to go in uh, and and sit there and and hear people say, here's our problem. Can you help? Sometimes people don't define the problem right and you say, I can help, but I can help, but it's a slightly different problem. Uh, and that's good too, because people need to know what you can and you can't do. Um, and the, the other part is one problem with the pandemic and with protests is that people justifiably want an immediate result. And results don't come immediately. When I, I said that we, some results do, but I said that we were able to purchase two mobile home parks. Uh, and uh, they that each project took eight years. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have bricks in my office that represent $350 million uh, in housing development, of public housing redevelopment. And as one of someone has noted, that meant that means that you had less units when you were done. Yes, we had less units when we were done. 
So those are, again, hard decisions. Um, but it takes time. It takes perseverance. Um, it's frustrating. Um, and, um, but it takes a belief, I think, that people in a community um, make the decisions for the community. You don't have to agree. Um, people can make bad decisions. People make bad decisions all the time. But when we have top-down decision-making, that means that we take people's communities and we put highways in the middle. Uh, that's not a good decision. Uh, it's a good decision for people living in the suburbs who want to drive through and never want to stop and get some good food. Um, but it's a bad decision for the community. And we have to be more community-oriented. We, we have to care about the quality of life for all people. All right, let's spend our remaining time with, with some good questions we got. Um, one is um, concerning gentrification. How do you advance affordable housing without a considerable amount of displacement of uh, black and brown communities is the question. Yeah, the, the answer is we have lots of tools for that. The answer is by st you start by saying we are not going to displace people, period. Um, so um, I'll give you my own experience um, where we were redeveloping a big site. Uh, we said, um, one, you have a right to return after development. Uh, we, you have a right to, um, to try to pick where you will live during redevelopment. Uh, we will try to do this in phases to keep you here. But by the way, not everyone wants to stay. So we are going to um, give you some incentives if you don't want to stay. He here's how you move people um, who are not committed to staying in a particular neighborhood. One, you provide them a permanent subsidy, like a Section 8 subsidy, um, to help with their rent. Two, um, you pay people a fair amount of money, as it turns out, um, to, to help them relocate. Uh, and what that means, we, we call them in New Haven home finders. Uh, we paid home finders uh, who got paid by for successful relocations. And they literally took people around like a realtor would do, uh, except with rentals and suburbs and school districts, spent a lot of time with them. Uh, and a fair number of people thought, it's good. I'm, I'd like to live here instead of where I was. Now, as far as how do you keep people, um, uh, almost every redevelopment needs government approvals and uh, no government approval should allow massive displacement. Um, so you start by saying um, uh, we are going to require um, that X percent, 10 percent if possible, 20 percent if necessary, uh, is going to go to, um, uh, to people who live in this community. We're not going to allow you to displace. Uh, and if need be, uh, we might want to have a condominium kind of situation where we have the community land trust own some units. We want, might, might want a public housing agency to own some of the units. Um, uh, we might want it to be rental. Um, we have all of these different tools. We have to use them all. Um, but, but I really believe that if you show me the puzzle of any particular development, I can show you how I would try to keep people, how I would successfully keep people in. Um, and sometimes it means uh, we're going to um, do this um, uh, over a long period of time because people do move out over time. Uh, you know, 10% of a particular building may move every year and it may mean that we're doing this in phases. Uh, and if we can't do it in phases, we may mean we're, it may mean we're paying people a premium. Uh, years ago, I had a situation where um, I, this is when I was in, uh, representing a tenant group and uh, they were, uh, developers were developing a building uh, and, uh, and they were creating situation for people who lived there, which was just untenable, dust, noise. 
uh, and I went to court to get an injunction to stop it. And you know, they of course yelled at me and said, what, do we, what will it take to get people to move? And I said, my clients will move for $10,000. That was at the time a lot of money. Uh, and they said, that's extortion. And I said, let, let me explain property law to you. Um, because here's why it's not extortion. You, you are asserting that you have a property right in this building, which you do, and it allows you to redevelop, but your redevelopment is interfering with my client's property right, which is a leasehold. So we have contrary property rights, and you're saying you want to do something um, uh, that violates my client's property rights. So I'm saying, great, you have to pay for it, and here's the amount. And amazingly, the other lawyer said, that's actually pretty good. That's true. Uh, and so we settled. Um, but, but, but the notion that that was an odd concept, that I have rights to develop as an owner, but the people who live here have no rights is, excuse me, everyone, it's just bullshit. Um, it's just not, you know, it's just, that's not what law is. Um, that's a false view of law. Uh, and law should protect all people. The only reason law don't protect poor people more is that they don't have lawyers. There's not, you know, there's, there's no money in it. So it's up to legal services lawyers and pro bono lawyers and clinics and, and other people. We need more, yeah, we do need more lawyers. It's almost hard to say that, but I am, I law schools have paid my salary for, for a lot of years now. Um, the next question is, um, what do you think about the recent lawsuits against the city of LA by landlords over the COVID-19 anti-eviction protections? Yeah, that, you know, I think they're going to lose. Um, uh, so I, I actually, I will, I will write a, a confession. I, I'm quoted in uh, in some paper as saying that um, rent forced rent abatements um, is unconstitutional as a taking. I think it is a due process violation. I don't think you can you can say to a landlord you can't collect rent, um, uh, but. Um, we're in an emergency situation, and I think you do have a police power. We, we're saying courts are closed for a lot of things. Uh, we, we, you know, so the notion that you cannot execute on a particular um, uh, debt is very different than saying you can't collect rents. The, the other side of it is, I guess, the landlord, I'm assuming landlords will say, well, because we can't evict, you're letting people stay rent-free. Um, and, and my answer to that is that may be factually correct, but it's not legally co correct. We are not stopping your right to charge people um, and we are not stopping your right um, to evict at some point if they don't pay. Um, there is an underlying question, which um, should there be rent abatements? Uh, and, and I think that renters should, be, should have ways to be subsidized and paying their rents. I don't think it should be at landlord's expense because that will just that will just result in a very, very fast deterioration of housing. Uh, and landlords need to pay mortgages and banks will foreclose. And it, it, it's a bad cycle downwards. We need to subsidize um, at a different, different end. There are a couple of questions about the impact of um, COVID and um, our economic downturn on students. I'll read one of them. Um, recent studies show a significant number of college students experiencing homelessness and housing insecurity. Any recommendations for working with local apartments, landlords, property owners to reduce prices, provide housing vouchers, create Section 8 housing near universities, et cetera? 
Yeah, all those are good ideas. Um, you're, you, as students, um, you are in a different category. My, my own view is um, student housing is part of an overall economic package. Um, the, I, I was looking at the UCI endowment. It's $1 billion roughly. Returns over the last several years have been about 10%. Um, that's 100 million a year. Um, the current spending is 4.5%, which is 45 million a year. Um, if UCI said we are going to um, subsidize all kinds of things, employees, students, you know, all, and we, for one year, because of an emergency, we raise the spending rules by 1%, we freed up a pot of $10 million. I don't know if that's enough. I don't know where it goes, but that's just one idea of what you do in an emergency. You know, there's a difference between um, a small landlord and a large landlord. The university, um, uh, I think, should be very forgiving. Um, uh, you know, preferably not loans. You know, students out there, you're, you're already paying too much. Uh, so we should find a way to subsidize you. Large landlords like the Irvine Corporation, in my view, should uh, be giving a rent abatement for, you know, two, three months. Why not? Um, well, that's not how capitalism works, um, but uh, sometimes you say uh, this is a charitable, uh, this is a charitable purpose, I'm going to do it. Um, we need to find ways to protect um, every segment of our population. Students are a particularized population, um, and there are different ways to look at it. I would look at it as an educational package problem. Well, so many great ideas, so much to talk about, yet we've reached the end of our time. Um, there were a number of requests for your slides, and um, oh. would you be willing to share them with the participants? Oh, yeah. yeah, I'll share them, but if people want to email me, I'll send them a, a larger deck of, that I use in class, which is more comprehensive and has better pictures. <laughs> Uh, do you want to, what is your email? Oh yeah, I'm on our, on our website, but it's rsolomon, S-O-L-O-M-O-N, at law.uci.edu. Okay, and I think the school can send the three slides from today to all of the participants just as a follow-up. That sounds great. Um, really nice to get this chance to talk it's to you, Bob. Appreciate all your work. I, I wish I saw people's faces, hopefully some familiar ones. Hopefully some of them are smiling. So... Um, thanks again, Song, and thanks to UCI for organizing this. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks, produced by the University of California, Irvine School of Law.